Welcome to the Tomball Bible Church Podcast. We exist to glorify Jesus Christ by making mature disciples to reach the nations. To find out more, visit us online at tomballbible.church. Well, we're continuing this morning with our sermon series that I have affectionately referred to as uh, walking randomly through the Psalms. Evan covered uh, Psalm 90 a few weeks back. Uh, Stuart covered five this week. We'll do 27. Next week, I'm not sure what number it is, but it could be one of those bingo kind of things. Anyway, so if you've got your uh, Bibles, we'll cover uh, Psalm 27. We read it through one time already. We're going to go through it in more detail in a moment. But before we do that, I wanted to tell a short story. Uh, Some of you know that my wife and I uh, enjoy hiking. So uh, typically in the fall, we'll disappear the first week in October or so and fly up northeast or somewhere where the colors change on the trees more so than they do in Texas. And uh, we will hike in the cool weather and uh, we'll enjoy ourselves. It's something we really enjoy. Our favorite kind of hike is uh, one that takes us up the side of a mountain where you can get on the top and be rewarded for three hours of hiking up with a beautiful view. And so that's our favorite kind of, of hike. We were on a hike one time a few years ago now that <clears throat> was on top of a mountain. It was about a six-hour hike, which is just about right for us. And we were looking forward to getting to the top because the the, uh, the website called alltrails.com had said there's a beautiful view from up there. And so we were hiking up, and we uh, we got very close. This mountain is a little unusual. I don't even remember the name, frankly, but as you know, most mountains are shaped in a kind of a pyramid structure. But this one, I think God had a bit of sense of humor because he took this gigantic rock about as big as my house and kind of plopped it on top of this mountain, kind of like you would put a cherry on top of a Sunday ice cream. And uh, when you got to the top, the last thing that you had to do was scale up to the top of this rock to actually get the view, the 360-degree view around so where my wife and I hiked, and we were fine, and we got up to the base of this rock, and we realized that we were no longer going to be able to hike. We were going to have to climb. My wife and I are really not climbers. Uh, we like walking, and uh, we're okay at going up steep grades or going down steep grades, but scrambling over the top of rocks and, and climbing in the physical fashion of handhold, handhold, foothold, foothold uh, is not what we do. And so we got up near the top, and we could see that we were only about 50 yards away, but that the, the, the climb was going to be uh, a little tricky. Well, my wife, uh, who is not a fearful person, if you know my wife, you know that she is strong and bold, and she, there are very few things that she is afraid of. She suddenly found herself in a bit of a panic attack. She, uh, she sat down, and she looked up, and she sat down again, and, and uh, I could tell she was troubled. She says, I, I, I can't go. I said, what? what's up? She said, well, look at that. I, I'm gonna, I, I can't do it. And uh, I could tell she was uh, she started to sweat. It wasn't a cold. I mean, it wasn't a warm day, so she wasn't sweating from the hike. And her hands were shaking a little bit, which is totally unusual. And she said, I just got to sit on for a minute. My heart is racing, she said. I thought, this is very unusual. This is not like my wife, but she was just frightened. She was scared to death of climbing up this boulder. I think at the heart of her fear, she was worried that gravity would work and that she would fall off and die. So I think that was a useful thing to be afraid of. But she was, she was obviously in distress. So I said, well, why don't we try it? If it gets too hard to come back, she said, I can't move. She said, forget it. I'm not going another inch. I'm just absolutely terrified. You go on without me, and you come back and get me, and then we'll hike back down the mountain the way we came. So I'm an obedient husband. I did exactly what she told me to do. I felt a little bit bad about leaving her there, but I had read all trails, and I said it was a really good view at the top. So anyway, I went up. And yeah, it was tricky. But as I was going, I was sort of looking for handholds and footholds that my wife could do and trying to think of ways I could help her to get up. 
And when I got to the top, which didn't take too long, about 15 minutes, uh, I found that it was all I was hoping it would be. It was an unbelievable view, up high. It was cool, a nice breeze was blowing, the sun was out, and the colors were awesome. Oranges and, uh, and yellows were just spread out in a 360 panorama as far as I could see. Well, I stayed up there just for a few minutes. I didn't want to leave my wife down 50 yards and 100 feet behind me, and, uh, and so I went back down. And as I went back down, I was looking carefully for ways that she could climb back down also. When I got back to there, she was sitting there, and I said, well, it's as good as you can imagine. You've got to come up. Please, come on, let's give it a shot. She said, no, I, I, I can't. Every time I look up there, I, my heart just starts to race, and all I can picture is my dead and crumpled body down at the bottom. And I said, I think you can do it. I said, you and I have hiked together for many, many years. I know what you're capable of and what you're not capable of. I just did it, and I think I can get you up there. Well, she didn't cave in immediately, but it took me maybe five minutes to convince her that it was okay and that she could give it a try. And as I talked to her and convinced her, slowly her fear started to subside, and she overcame it. And finally she stood up and she said, okay, let's give it a shot. And we did, uh, and it was good. We, uh, it was slow, uh, and, and she, she trusted me, and I had to help her a few times by giving her a boost. But um, we got up to the top, and sure enough, it was as much as she expected it to be. And, of course, we had to come down, so we had that was a little tricky too, but it was fantastic. And later, uh, and she likes to tell this story about her own fear. She said, uh, it, just, it just consumed me. It was too much for me to, to push off. And if you were to ask her why it is that finally her, her fear was overcome, she said, because I trusted my husband. Me, trustworthy as I am. She said, we've hiked so many years together, and she knew that I wouldn't lie to her. I wouldn't try to trick her into doing something which is dangerous. And I knew what her capabilities were. And so when I told her that we could do it and that we could do it together, she trusted me. She had confidence in me for the 41 years that we've been married, and that allowed her to overcome her fear. That's my story. And it's a little glimpse uh, into fear, the kind of fear we're going to talk about this morning. But as we turn to Scripture now, let me just open us in a word of prayer again. Lord, we're thankful that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. And I'm thankful that this morning uh, nobody came here to listen to a guy tell stories about hiking, but that they all came to hear your word and allow their ears to be opened by the Holy Spirit. And as I've prayed for for weeks preparing for this moment this morning, I've prayed, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would speak through me. And so I pray that you would do so, that your word would come alive for each and every one of us, me first, and that we'd walk away from here changed as a result with a better understanding of who you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Psalm 27 is all about one thing. It's all about fear. In the Bible, there's two kinds of fears. The first kind that we won't talk about this morning is what I call the fear of God. We'll see that phrase often in your Bibles. The fear of God isn't, is, is more of a, a reverence. It's a respectful understanding of the true nature of God. It's understanding and a reverent awe of God's power, of His might, of His glory, of His goodness. And our Bible is clear that that kind of fear, the fear of the Lord, is something that we should seek. It's something we want to obtain because it's a good thing. We're not going to talk about that this morning. We're going to talk about the other kind of fear, which is the kind of fear that overtook my wife as she was contemplating her own death by falling off that rock. And that fear is different, and it's, it's defined by a guy named Webster who writes dictionaries. He says, fear is an unpleasant, 
Everyone of you knows fear is unpleasant. And often strong emotion caused by anticipation or awareness of danger. So the anticipation can be something that you think is going to happen that never happens, but you're still afraid of it. Or it might be a, a true and present danger that is real, and you're afraid of that. And that's what fear is. Uh, there's an extreme form of fear, and we call that anxiety. Anxiety is defined by Webster as an abnormal and overwhelming fear that's often marked by physiological changes, such as sweating, uh, such as your heart racing, such as hands shaking, uh, and certainly a fair bit of, of tension. We as Americans uh, fear a lot of things. Uh, you can go on any uh, several Internet sites and find out uh, surveys that people run. What are you afraid of? And this is the kind of things that we are af afraid of as Americans. We're afraid of speaking in public, unemployment, and poverty. We are afraid of serious illness and death. We're afraid of failure and rejection. Many of us are afraid of heights, afraid of flying, afraid of being in small spaces. I'm afraid of that. We're afraid of tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, earthquakes, and lightning. We are afraid of break-ins, sexual assaults, identity theft, random mass shootings. Many of us are afraid of sharks, dogs, spiders, and snakes. And some of us are afraid of strangers, zombies, ghosts, and my favorite, circus clowns. But I can guarantee you that those who are afraid of circus clowns don't laugh when they see one. Now, fear is a good thing if it keeps us safe. So, for example, if you have a healthy fear of electricity, that's a good thing. It will probably keep you alive. If you're doing some wiring work in your kitchen and you're not afraid or don't have a healthy fear of electricity, I suggest you call an electrician before you electrocute yourself. The Bible uh, says quite a few things about fear. What does it say? Well, the, mo the thing it says most often about fear is fear not. Fear not. In fact, it's the most repeated command in our Bible. 103 times in our Bible, God says to us, fear not or do not be afraid. 103 times. Isaiah 43 says, God says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. Isaiah 35 says, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. He says to Joshua in chapter 1, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened. And Jesus tells us in John 14, Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now, Psalm 27, as I mentioned, is all about fear. David uh, wrote this song. Some of the Psalms have this nice little introductory sentence or so, which is part of Scripture. In this case, uh, it doesn't give us much instruction. It just simply says, of David. Two little words that tell us that David wrote this psalm. But it doesn't tell us when David wrote the psalm. It doesn't tell us uh, what was happening in David's life when he wrote the psalm. But anybody who reads it, as we read it earlier, it's, it's easy just by reading it that David at the time was fearful. There's no doubt about that. Now, David, as you know, was a, a brave warrior. He was a commander of the Israel army. And he was also a king for much of his life. Uh, but he was often afraid. Why? I think it's mostly because David's life was almost never calm and peaceful. Uh, he was anointed by Samuel to be king while the existing king, uh, Saul, was still in power. And so for a long period of time, he uh, marched around running away. He was a fugitive with an entire army trying to find him to kill him. He's, he, was an, he was an officer. He was the commander of the Israelite army. 
And so in combat and war, his life was always at risk, always at risk. Uh, and even after he took the throne and became king, uh, David was surrounded by what I call political intrigue, people plotting and scheming against him and against his, his reign as king. And even within his own family, he had probably one of the most dysfunctional families that we see in the Bible. It was full of, of things that are quite sinful and, and can be quite fearful, including rape and incest and murder and adultery. So none of David's life was a simple one. David knew a lot about fear. And many of David's psalms that he's written for us that we have in our Bibles talk about things that have taken place in his life and the fear that he had as a result of that. Now, one of the things I like best about the Psalms, I think the Psalms is, is unique in this regard. Uh, we believe that all Scripture is inspired by God, and that includes the Psalms. And what we mean by that is that God breathed into the writers of those books the words that he wanted them to say. But in the case of Psalms, you get the impression that he also allowed the emotions of the writer himself to, to bleed that into the paper, to bleed it into the, the, the Psalms. And so we see in the book of Psalms a lot of emotion. We see how the writers felt. We, we see how they, were, how, how they were thinking. We see the, the emotions that was going through them as they, as they wrote them. And Psalm 27 is really no different. In fact, it's quite an emotional ride. I would call it a roller coaster, but it isn't up and down and up and down. This one is more like a bungee jump where he starts off his psalm uh, at a very high level, very, very, very confident. And if you've ever done bungee jumping, you're standing at the top of that, that platform and you're really, really confident because you haven't jumped yet. And then in the middle of David's psalm, all of a sudden he just plunges into the lack of confidence. His emotions just switch almost overnight and he's suddenly desperate and he's pleading to God. And then just as quickly as he did that, he prays and at the end of his prayer, like that bungee cord that didn't break, pulls you right back up almost to the level he was before and his confidence returns. So what I want to do is I want, to, I want to read through Psalm 27 again. I know we read it a few minutes before, but I think it's good to allow Scripture speak for itself in many cases. And so what I want to do, though, is I want to describe his emotions as we run through this. So let's read through it, 1 through 14, Psalm 27 of David. And again, we start out with David being confident and trusting in God. You can see his strong words of confidence coming because he hasn't jumped off the bungee platform just yet. The Lord is my light and my salvation whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assault me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. And the confidence just exudes out of him, doesn't it? He sees God as, 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 as the provider, and he's, he's just confident. And then, I don't know, all of a sudden, he just, boom, he switches into this. He must have jumped off the platform. He's now hurtling toward what he thinks is his death, and he's desperate. He's desperate. He starts to pray. You see it. And when I read it, I feel like I have to read faster, that my heart's going to have to beat a little faster, because these are the words jumping off the page at me. 
Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, O Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. And then just as quickly, he switches back. Almost like he's at the bottom of the bungee cord. Now he comes back up to confidence. And he winds up in the last two verses confident again. He says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. One through six, very confident. Seven through twelve, desperate. And then finally, 13, 14, confident again. What was David afraid of? Well, David was afraid of people. He weaves his way all the way through the entire psalm, and it's easy to pick them out. He was afraid of people, and he was afraid of what these people might do to him. We see in verse 2, he says, Evildoers assail him to eat up his flesh. In verse 3, we see that an army encamps against him, and that war arises against him. We see in verse 6, there are enemies all around him, enemies. In verse 12, he says, false witnesses have risen against him, and they breathe out violence. David was afraid of people. He calls them different things. He calls them uh, evildoers. He calls them adversaries. He calls them foes. He refers to them as an army. He calls them enemies and false witnesses. And David was afraid of what these people might do to him. And he lists those also. They make war, they tell lies, they wage violence, and they attack him to eat up his flesh. So what I want to do is go back, just back to verse 1 and sort of walk through this slowly. Verse 1, David writes this. He says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So David starts off by talking about God. And what does he say about God? He calls God three things. He calls God his light, his salvation, and his stronghold. And these are all words of safety, aren't they? God is light. In light there is a safety. You can see what's going on. There's security in light. It's the opposite of darkness, which is, which is evil and dangerous. And he says that God not only gives light, God is light. Then he says that God is my salvation my rescue, my escape. Again, he refers to, says that God not only gives salvation, but God is his salvation. And then he calls him his stronghold. This is a military term that we see quite often in, the, in Samuel when we're looking at David's life. Each time he was escaping and running from Saul, he would run to the stronghold, which is just a place of security. It's a fortified place where it's safe. It's a refuge, protection. And then again, he says that God is his stronghold, a safe fortress from danger. And therefore, he's able to say twice, he says, uh, therefore, whom shall I fear? Whom shall I fear, David says. It's a rhetorical question. He's confident in God. He doesn't have to fear anybody. Verse 2, he says, 
When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Evildoers assail David. Assail means to attack or to assault. David's enemies were evildoers, adversaries, foes. And he uses this phrase here, they they, um, assail me to eat up my flesh. And I don't think he was talking about zombies here, although he might have been. I think he was simply describing these men as though they were wild beasts like a lion who are violent and who would attack him and metaphorically would eat his flesh. And what happens to these evildoers? Well, David says very clearly, he says, they stumble and fall. Now, notice that David doesn't say, I will pull out my sword and wield my sword, and they will stumble and fall. Now, David recognizes that they stumble and fall because God does the work, not because he does the work. And even though David was a mighty warrior and a commander, he gives God credit for his victories in battle. A good example of that is found in 2 Samuel chapter 5. I'll just tell you the story quickly. If you've got time this afternoon, you go and read it. It's a good story. The Philistines had attacked Israel when David was commander of the army, and David went to God and said, what should I do? And God told him, attack, a frontal attack. And he did, and he was victorious. And a few weeks later, the Philistines regathered their troops and came back to attack again. And David went back to God and said, shall I attack them from the front as I did last time? We had such a great victory. Is that the flat line this time? And God said, no, I don't do it that way this time. I have a different plan. Go around behind them and hide and wait. Wait until you hear the sound of marching, marching boots. Wait until you hear the sound of marching boots up in the trees. Then you will know that the Lord has gone out ahead of you to destroy the Philistines. The marching boots was not the Philistines' boots. It was the Lord's army marching ahead of David, destroying the Philistines, and David would come in behind and pick up the spoils. David was confident that God would deliver him in war. He was confident because God had delivered him before in miraculous ways. Verse 3, he says, Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. David describes his fear of armies marching against him. And this word he uses here, encamp against me, if you have the NIV version, you'll see it says, lay a siege. The idea isn't that they, they camp in front of you in their little tents and are waiting for you to attack. It's that, it's, that they, it's that they come around you and surround you. And to lay a siege means you've got your enemy bottled up in a place and usually inside of a city walls. And to lay a siege is simply to cut off all water going into the city and cut off all sources of food supply. It's a nasty little trick in war, but it works. What happens is they either starve to death or they wave the little white flag and come out. It takes a while, but it's easy. He says, I will not fear. I have confidence in God. Then verse 4, he says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Because God has... Because David had confidence in God, he desired three things here. He desired to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life, which means he wants to have a a strong spiritual uh, fellowship with God uh, a day to day, every day, because he can trust God. Then he says he wants to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. This isn't something he wants to see with his eyes, not that kind of gazing, but he wants to marvel at God's nature, about God's character, because he trusts him and loves him. Then he says he wants to inquire in his temple. David wants there is he wants God's wisdom. 
He wants to be able to inquire and to seek God's wisdom and to receive that wisdom because he knows God is trustworthy. And then what will God do for David? Well, David lays this out in verses 5 and 6. He says, For he that is God will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. He says that God will hide David in his shelter. He will hide him from his enemies. We saw this many times when he was fleeing from Saul. He was able to hide and, and, and go unnoticed, even when David saw them coming. He concealed David under the cover of God's tent. He would lift David high up on a rock. It's a great military position to be when you're, you're up high and your enemy can't get to you. You can see all around you and see what's happening. You would lift David's head above his enemies. Because of that, David says, I will, I will worship. I'll offer sacrifices with joy. I will sing to the Lord. And David's confidence is now at the high point. He's at the point where his trust and confidence in God is so strong that he recognizes all he can really do is bow down and worship in joy raise his voice in song because he knew that God would protect him, shelter him, cover him, hide him. And this brought great joy to David. But between verse 6 and 7, something happened. His emotions change uh, uh, dramatically. He does a 180-degree turn. He goes from confidence to desperation. And he, and he pleads with God. He launches into a prayer, but it's a prayer of crying out to God, a prayer of of desperation, a prayer of, of, God, help me. And you can see it very clearly. There's panic in his voice. And I feel like I must read this faster because the, 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 the urgency that's there, you can see David just, just praying out aloud and, and seeking God's mercy. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. You can see the anguish and the pleading desperately for God. His attitude and his emotions are totally different. He says, hear me, I cry aloud in verse 1, be gracious and answer me. He says, you said, seek my face. And David says, I have been seeking your face. Don't hide your face from me. Don't turn your servant away, he says. You have been my help, my salvation. Do it again, God, do it again. Don't cast me off, don't forsake me. Teach me your way, I don't understand. Lead me on a level path. Smooth out my path for me, Lord. This is difficult. Don't give me up to my enemies. I'm losing confidence. Well, why did David suddenly launch into prayer? Why did his emotions go from high confidence to pleading desperately? And I think the answer is in verse 12. Verse 12 says, For false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I think in the middle of his drafting this psalm, this overwhelming feeling came in, and he remembered that his enemies were spreading lies about him, 
for the purpose of gathering others together around and destroy him. And that feeling of fear just kind of overwhelmed him. He thought about it, and his fear came back. And I think for many of us, that's how fear works, isn't it? Sometimes we find ourselves in a position of confidence and not worrying about too many things, and all of a sudden, like when you're standing on the beach, facing the wrong direction because you're watching one of your kids or grandchildren, and a big wave hits you in the back. It just surprises you, sneaks up on you. And you don't know why, but it drags you down. It drags you in, and you can see what happened to David. It dragged him down. But in David's case, what did he do with that? David turned this into prayer. He turned his desperation into prayer. And as soon as he was done praying, his confidence returned. It was like he hit the bottom of that, that bungee cord, and it didn't break, and it vaulted him right back up to confidence. In verse 13, very calmly, he got it back, and he said, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And then he gives us some advice. He says, wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. David, remember that he will someday see God. And what he's saying here is that he will see the goodness of God in the land of the living, which I think he's talking about here in this life, here on this earth. In his own life, he's going to be able to see God's goodness. He's going to be able to experience that and see with his eyes. And then he ended the psalm with some good advice. He says, wait for the Lord, be strong and have courage, wait for the Lord. So that's Psalm 27. But what do we learn from that? What do we take home? We see David uh, pleading, we see his confidence, we see him plummeting, we see him coming back. We learn a lot of things about God. What do we take home from this? I think we take home four points. One is that fear is normal. We will all be afraid. Two, we do not need to fear. Three, when fear hits, pray desperately. And four, take courage and wait for the Lord. Let's run through those quickly and we'll be done. Fear, number one, fear happens to us all. We should expect it. It's going to happen. It's normal. David is described in, in Scripture as a man after God's own heart, and yet David was often afraid, even though he was a powerful warrior and a king. Moses, similar, powerful leader. He had a bit of a speech impediment, but powerful man, strong leader, spoke audibly with God, and yet Moses was often afraid. Our Bibles are full of people who are, who are strong Followers of God, followers of Jesus, but they were all afraid. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Job, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Peter, James, John, Paul. All powerful people. All hard followers after God, but yet they were afraid. Often. Fear is normal. We should expect to be fearful now and then. But point number two is we don't need to be fearful. We do not need to be afraid. Why? Well, two reasons. One, God is sovereign. Two, God is good. Let's take those apart. David makes it clear in Psalm 27.1. This is where his confidence comes from. He says, verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. 
of whom shall I be afraid? David says, I don't need to be afraid. I don't need to be afraid because I have my confidence in God. I have my trust in God. Why can we have trust in God? I think there's two reasons for that. One is God is sovereign. To be sovereign means that he controls all things and that anything that's taken place has either happened because God caused it to happen or God allowed it to happen. If it took place, it was part of God's will. Nothing happens in the world without God causing it or allowing it. Lamentations 3.37 says this, He who has spoken and it came to pass, sorry, who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it. God is sovereign over big things and small things. He's sovereign over the entire universe. He's sovereign over things that happen on earth, things that happen in heaven. This is clear from Daniel chapter 4, verse 35. It says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he that is God does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? And God is sovereign over the small things. Not just the big stuff. God's involved in the details of our lives. He's in everything that takes place. The big stuff and the little stuff. There's nothing too small that God's sovereignty doesn't rule over. Jesus said this to his disciples in Luke chapter 12. He said, aren't five sparrows, little birds, aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies? A small amount of money even back then. And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Even the hairs on our head are numbered. That's the kind of detail God gets into in his sovereign will. Some of you have known me for a while. I've noticed that my forehead is getting larger. It's because my hair is falling out and it's not growing back. And that is God's sovereign will for my hair. I may not like it, but that's too bad. He's involved in the details of us. And when a sparrow falls from the sky, he knows it. It's part of his plan. Nothing is too small for God's sovereignty. We can trust God because he's sovereign. Secondly, we can trust God because God is good. God is a good God. That is all throughout Scripture. Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Because God is sovereign and God is good, we have nothing to fear. Writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 13, 6 says this, We can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What can man do to me? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is nothing. We should be afraid of no one. Paul writes the same thing in Romans eight thirty one: If God is for us, who can be against us? The answer is no one should not be afraid of man. Psalm 56, 3 and 4, which David wrote, says, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? We don't need to fear because God is sovereign and God is good. And because of this, we can take God's promises seriously. I think one of his greatest promises is in eight, Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his good purpose. For those who love God, God is not only in control of all that, but he's working all things for your good. And you may not know how good the things are at the time that they happen. God, we may pray for things and God may give us something different. Not because he doesn't like us, but because he knows what's best for us. 
And we can have confidence in God because of that. Fear not. God works all things for your good. Point number three is that when fear hits, pray with desperation. Pray with desperation. In the middle of Psalm 27, David got overcome by fear. He prayed desperately. Prayer allows us to take our eyes off that which we're afraid of and puts our eyes on God. When we got our eyes on God. We know that God is good, that God is sovereign, and prayer will allow us to overcome our fear. Paul wrote this uh, to the Philippian church, Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything. I've memorized this in a different version, so it won't match what's on the screen. Do not be anxious about everything, but in everything by prayer, with petition, thanksgiving, make your requests known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And that's the way that Paul says to overcome anxiety, is to pray. Pray fervently to the God of the universe with supplication and with thanksgiving. In Psalm 34, David wrote that seeking God in prayer is the key to overcoming evil. He wrote, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. And then finally, point number four is that we should take courage and wait for the Lord. David says this in the last verse of Psalm 27. Verse 14, he says, Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Psalm 62, which David also wrote, he said, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. Limitations 325-26 says, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. You and I have both observed that God doesn't always work on our time schedule, does he? Our clock is uh, running, our calendars are flying past, and we pray, and God doesn't seem to have answers our prayer in the time frame that, that we want it often. And so waiting on God is necessary. I believe God invented the idea of just in time and not a minute sooner to test our patience, to test our faith. But David says clearly, and the Bible says clearly, that waiting on God is necessary. Within God. God will not be rushed, but God will indeed deliver. Now, when it comes to fear, we look in our Bibles, and not surprisingly, the best example is Jesus himself. We see a lot of Jesus' life, the details of his interactions with people, and he's never depicted as being afraid or fearful. And I think the reason for that is because Jesus, being fully man, and so he could be afraid, it was possible for him to be so, but being fully God, he had a perfect and clear and a pure understanding of God the Father, because Jesus is God. And so when he was confronted with things that would be fearful, his understanding of God was perfect, and he could see God's pure, unadulterated goodness. He could see God's pure sovereignty over all things. And so when he was in a boat at sea being tossed back and forth by a violent storm, or when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before he was arrested, and when he was on trial in front of the high priest, in front of the Sanhedrin, in front of Pontius Pilate, and when he carried his cross down that dirt road up to Calvary Mountain, and when he hung on the cross to die, for all mankind, he wasn't afraid. There was no fear. Because he understood God's goodness, 
understood God and his sovereign power. Fear happens to all of us. We should expect it. We do not need to fear because God is sovereign and God is good. When fear hits, pray with desperation. And fourthly, take courage, wait for the Lord. 103 times, God says to us, fear not. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. To find out more, visit us online at tomballbible.church.